Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 7, it says, And he, that is Jesus, called the twelve to himself and began to send them out two by two and gave them power over unclean spirits. He commanded them to take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bag, no bread, no copper in their money belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. Also, he said to them, in whatever place you enter a house, stay there until you depart from that place. And whoever will not receive you nor hear you when you depart from there, shake off the dust under your feet as a testimony against them. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. So they went out and preached that people should repent and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. In the sixth chapter of Mark, the disciples in the first six verses were given the opportunity to better know the servant. And now the disciples are given the opportunity to share the word in verses seven through thirteen. Before being sent by the servant, we must be equipped, it says in verse 7, and be given proper instructions, it says in verses 8 through 13. In a very real sense, we're like hunters. I've been doing some research on hunter-gatherer cultures and the technology that they employed. But you see, our prey isn't big game, but big sinners. Our job is not to kill our prey, but participate in Jesus giving them life. We have a whole different world in which we live. Before we embark on our safari, which is the Swahili word for journey, we go to the servant's outfitting store. And the disciples will be commissioned and empowered by Jesus. And the urgency of the work will mean that the disciples will need to travel light. You know, there are all kinds of different journeys. And in some of those journeys, we need things. In some journeys, we don't need things. And guess what? Jesus gets to decide what kind of journey it is. The disciples will be commissioned and empowered. We cannot take what we do not need. But we must trust that everything we need is going to be provided by the Lord. So Jesus is encouraging his disciples to live by faith. And the main task of the mission was to encourage repentance, to preach the word, to lead people to trust that Jesus is God's Messiah. Now, remember that the disciples have been following Jesus for about one year. And this is sort of their maiden voyage. This is going to be the first time that they're going to strike out on their own and provide ministry without the physical presence of Jesus. Now, our success will depend in large part on how well we're equipped for the task at hand. Our success will also depend on how willing we are to listen to the instructions of the Savior and then follow the instructions of the Savior. In Mark's gospel, by the way, we've already seen Jesus 
call the apostles or disciples in chapter 1, verses 16 through 20. Name the disciples in chapter 3, verses 13 through 19. And now comes the process of sending them. And so it begins with the servants equipping in verse 7, which is going to take a while to explain. It says in verse 7, and he, that is Jesus, called the twelve to himself and began to send them two by two and gave them power over unclean spirits. The very first thing I want to draw to your attention is that he calls the twelve to himself. In other words, before authorization and authority comes, there is an attachment that begins to take place. Jesus calls the twelve to himself. Earlier in Mark's gospel, I've already alluded to chapter 3, verse 13, where we read, And he, that is Jesus, went up to the mountain. He called to him those he himself wanted, and they came to him. Then he appointed twelve that... They might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have power to heal sickness and to cast out demons. In other words, this attachment is critical because if you leave, then guess what? If, if you haven't spent enough time with Jesus or been discipled by Jesus, if you haven't listened to the Savior or embraced the message of the Savior, it doesn't make much sense for you to go. Chuck Colson writes, quote, the church is the God ordained means for evangelism, for discipleship, for witnessing of the kingdom. And guess what? The head of the church is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we get our instructions from the head. The disciples were called before they sent, were sent. But guess what? In that calling and before the sending, Jesus attaches the disciples and associates them with himself. And listen carefully to why this is important. Because they see Jesus. They listen to Jesus. They associate with Jesus. They watch how he lives. They watch how he speaks. They watch how he responds to people. As a matter of fact, in the context, remember in, in chapter 6, um, before verse 7, it says, And he marveled because of their unbelief, talking about the unbelief of the people in Nazareth. Then he, that is Jesus, went about the villages... In a circuit teaching, they're watching Jesus. They're listening to Jesus. They're hearing and watching and listening. And this is going to provide the mechanism for them to begin to understand of what it means to not only know him and love him and follow him, but what it means to have his message. And by the way, you will never have his message unless you're willing to listen to that message yourself and believe it for yourself. So. The word sent, he called the disciples to himself and began to send them. The verb is apostolo or apostello. It's the verb form of a very familiar noun. Many of you are going to be familiar with the noun. It's apostle. It's the word that means someone who is sent by a particular person with a particular message. And so the verb implies exactly that same thing. One who is sent with a message on behalf of someone. We might think of this as this sending having the elements of attachment. They've been with Jesus. 
commission or authorization. They're sent by someone with that person's message in order to accomplish that person's work. You know, much of the ministry that takes place at Calvary isn't here on Sunday morning, but it's throughout the week. As a matter of fact, what I try to do throughout the week is to accompany you so that you can see what's going on. There's a reason why I'm on the radio, and it isn't just to be able to answer people's Bible questions. It's so that I can model for you what it means to hear a question and respond to that question all the while being faithful to the text, but pointing to the message of Jesus. Remember, our work is the work of Jesus. Our, our message is the message of Jesus. Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Gentiles foolishness. Why is the preaching of Christ a stumbling block to the Jew and foolishness to the to to the to the Gentiles? It's because it doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense that the problem that human beings have is sin and that the solution is Jesus and that the message of hope is that there's forgiveness and reconciliation that's found in Jesus. Recently, the United States sent a delegation to the country of Pakistan. A few days ago, the Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, the Secretary of, of Defense Leon Panetta, the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, went to Pakistan to meet with their counterparts, and this is the message that, came, that, they, that they were to deliver to their counterparts in Pakistan. The message is, if you continue to harbor terrorists... If you continue to harbor them who plan and then prepare to kill Americans, we're going to do something about it. Now, I applaud the message, and I hope that it's heard. The point of, of this illustration isn't to make a political statement, but to remind you that if the government has any responsibility whatsoever, it's for the safety and security of its citizens. Our government has a responsibility to protect its citizens. But guess what? We as Christians also have responsibilities. Just like they are sent with a message, they have to have the power <coughs> in order to make good on the message. It makes no sense to just simply threaten a person with no consequences. And it makes no sense to have a message of hope unless that hope is real. Unless the hope is meaningful. It makes absolutely no sense for me to say or for you to say that Jesus Christ is in the business of forgiving sinners and changing lives unless it's true. So equipping includes attachment and authorization. And then look what Jesus does. He sends them out two by two. There's an element of accountability. Think about it for just a moment. Why does Jesus send them out two by two? There's several uh, suggestions that I'd like to make. Number one, perhaps the preaching could be confirmed 
by two or more witnesses. Remember in the Old Testament, in the book of Deuteronomy, it says, let each fact be established in the mouths of two or three witnesses. It's one thing for one person to say Jesus Christ is Lord and that he's in the business of forgiving sins. And it's another thing for another person to say, that's exactly true. I've invited Christ into my life and he's changed my life. Clearly, the Bible says two are better than one for strength and mutual help. Remember, the Bible says if one person falls down, there's another person to lift them up. So there's a sense in in which the testimony is confirmed. There is a sense in which mutual strength and mutual aid is accomplished and maybe for accountability. In other words, if one person gets a, a little bit too selfish... Two people can rein it back in and say, hey, remember, the message isn't about you. The message is about Jesus. The message is about Jesus. This is who we're here. We're here to present Christ. And so it says that Jesus sends them, but he gives them power. Now, remember, in the Greek language, there's two words for power. The first is dunamis, which means intrinsic power. It's the idea of a physical um, ability, like let's say you're really strong and you can rip a phone book in half. It's not that kind of power. This power is called exousia. It's delegated power. It's credentialed power. And I use the illustration often because it seems to make sense of a police officer. When a police officer goes through an academy before they're issued a badge and a gun, They're given power by the department. They're given power by the municipality. They're given power by the state in order to exercise authority in any given situation. So it's not the gun and the badge that gives them power. The reason why you stop when a police officer says stop is because if you ignore that officer, you're ignoring every officer. Any 3,000-pound car can defeat any 185-pound officer. So if the officer says stop and you keep driving, you can run them over. But if you do run them over, guess what? You've run over everyone in the department. You've run over the city and the county and the state. And so here, this power is a cinch of, of credentialing, but the power of God, the dunamis, the very real presence of God and the power of God is present to make sure that the disciples commands are obeyed. And so the ministry of the ambassador includes attachment to the savior, authorization from the savior, and now authority or power given by the savior. And so they're given apostolic authority and divine ability. And by the way, it's one thing to be able to cast out demons. It's another thing to transfer that authority and ability to another. And so only God can do this. In a moment, Jesus will give them instructions. But I got to tell you something. Those instructions will be impossible to obey. Unless they embrace Both the authority, ability, and accountability that's given to him by Jesus himself. So why does Jesus give the disciples, now apostolic missionaries, power over demons? You have to understand the context. It's because of satanic opposition. 
You see, the reality is that human beings are lost in darkness and wickedness. And because they're lost in darkness and wickedness, that means that the message is going to experience confrontation with the sources of evil. The nature and the character of the ministry of Jesus is confrontation with evil. Because guess what? Evil is real. And darkness is real. And sin, it says, has taken its toll on the lives of many human beings. And many of you understand that firsthand. You understand what it meant before you were saved to live a life of darkness and wickedness and estrangement from God. The disciples have been with Jesus. They've heard Jesus preach. They've heard him teach and heal and cast out demons. David L. McKenna in his commentary on this passage suggests that the crisis of rejection in Nazareth is going to in fact provide at least some mechanism, a stage, if you will, to determine if Jesus will join the ranks of the interesting but uneventful leaders that separate great leaders from small pretenders. It's one thing for Jesus to be able to do it, but can he really, can he really, can he really give you the authority to do it too. He writes, and I quote, can the vision of the leader be grasped by others? Can the authority of the leader be transferred to others? Can the teaching of the leader be taught by others? Can the actions of the leader be duplicated by others? Can the results of the leader be multiplied by others? And you can imagine some of them might be thinking, We've only been with Jesus for one year. We're not ready. We're not equipped. We're not able. We're not prepared to deal with this kind of ministry. But Jesus is going to do exactly that. Because ready or not, here we come. Ready or not, it's an empty world. It's a dark world. It's, it's a world that needs Jesus. And for whatever reason, he's chose to use men and women exactly like you and me. And look, it begins with. With the equipping, but it continues with the instructions. Look what it says in verse eight. He commanded them to take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bag, no bread, no copper in their money belts. By the way, no bag. Pira. It's. It's a word that could mean a knapsack. It, it's a word that could mean a traveler's bag. But it was often used in the ancient world to describe a beggar's bag. In the ancient world of the Greeks and the Romans, when they represented different deities, there would be people who would, would, would have beggar's bags, literally. And the word bread comes before bag. And so I'm going to suggest to you that it might mean take no food or any bag for begging food. In other words, here's what it, here's where the instructions begin. You're going to have to count on me for everything. The next time you hear people begging for money on on TV or on the radio, you might give them Mark chapter six, verse eight. No begging. In verse nine, it says, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. The, the word tunic is a word that meant not the outer garment, but the inner garment. In the ancient world, they didn't have a whole lot of clothing. And let me try and help you understand 
the keen sense of first century fashion. In the first century, they would have like a four foot by four foot piece of cloth and they would fold it in half and they would sew it. My mother, when we were growing up, she used to talk about the little flower bags that they used to get at the grocery store and that they would literally make underwear from these little flower sacks. They didn't have a whole lot of store-bought clothes, and so they would have to make their own clothes. And in the ancient world, they would weave these clothes. And I want you to imagine a sack, if you will, that's sewn on, on, on the top and then sewn on the bottom with, with the bottom open. And they would cut a hole in the top, and then they would cut holes in the side. If you can imagine wearing a sack, that's what this inner garment is. It's kind of like underwear. This is one of the ways you can tell if I've been sent by Jesus or I've been sent by my wife. When I usually travel, my wife will say, how long will you be gone? And I'll say two days or three days. And she'll put in two pair or three pair of underwear. Because she doesn't care if I travel light. She wants me to to travel with health in mind and. But that's the point. In this particular passage, Jesus is saying you're not going to carry only just the inner garment and the outer garment sandals. Yes, a staff. Yes. Why? Because in the ancient world, there were hard roads and they needed protection against animals. So the instruction that Jesus gives seems counterintuitive. I want you to go. Well, what should we take? You're not going to take anything. What? Go without provision, no bread, no wallet, no credit cards. You're to trust me for everything. You're to trust me to supply all of your needs. Theirs was to be a life and a ministry that was marked by faith. And by the way, do you think that people, when they would go from village to village, do you think that they would go, ho, ho, look at what the apostles are driving up and look at that Mercedes band. Look at that Rolls Royce. Do you think that the people were drawn to Christianity because of the wealth and the splendor and the opulence of the apostles? Uh, I don't think so. People aren't going to be attracted to Christianity in the hopes of becoming wealthy. They're going to be attracted to Christianity in the hopes of the emptiness becoming full, the darkness becoming light, the guilt becoming forgiveness, the despair becoming hope. And so in verse 10, it says, also, he said to them, in whatever place you enter a house, stay there till you depart from that place. Okay, here's the instruction so far. Go without provision. The second part of the instruction, accept hospitality where it's offered. So what does this mean? Also, he said to them, in whatever place you enter a house, stay there till you depart from that place. It's very difficult for us to understand New Testament traditions, particularly New Testament traditions in the first century. But you have to understand something. If you're from the South, like where I was born and spent some of my life, there's a thing called Southern hospitality. 
In Southern hospitality, you don't ask for hospitality. It's extended to you. You don't ask for a glass of tea. It's offered to you. And in the world of the first century, when you showed up in a village, people would fight and scrap and they would work hard to be the person who offered and extended hospitality to you because this was an important part of their culture. In their culture, it was important to be generous. It was important to be accommodating because they lived in a world where if you traveled, can you imagine how important it was for for people to be kind and to be generous and, and, and to be gracious? And so here's the point that Jesus is in effect making. That when you go, you're not to ask for things. They're going to extend it to you. And then he says... And you need to stay where you, you wind up. Let me give you an example. Imagine you show up in a place and the person says, come and stay with me. And you go, tell me about the accommodations. It's a basement. And tell me about the bedding. It's a sleeping bag. You can stay in my basement and sleep in the sleeping bag. And you're thinking, I'm going to hold out for something better. Hey, come and stay at my house. What do you have? I have a luxurious 3,000-foot guest room with an amazing sauna and jacuzzi staffed by servants in an all-you-can-eat buffet. And you go, hmm, basement, sleeping bag. Well, that's the point. That is exactly the point. You're not there for comfortable lodging. You're not there to have your needs met. What is your message? Doesn't your message include preaching the one who didn't come to please himself? Did Jesus leave you with the impression that he is self-seeking and self-serving? The disciples weren't to compromise the message by seeking luxury, comfort, or ease. That's the point. He's saying, go travel light, accept hospitality. So what are our instructions? Trust God for the provision. Accept hospitality. And in verse 11, and now if a place rejects the disciples and refuse their message, they're not obligated to remain. That's what it means in verse 11. And whoever will not receive you nor hear you when you depart from there, shake off the dust under your feet as a testimony against them. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Why is he saying that? Again, you have to understand first century Judaism. In the Jewish world, when the Jewish people would go and they would leave Jerusalem and Judea and they would travel outside of the country, when they would return, when they came to the port of entry, so to speak, they would shake off their coat and they would shake off the dust and they would shake off their shoes because in their way of thinking... Judea and Jerusalem is sacred. It is holy. Not even the dirt from the Gentile nation should be allowed entrance into the Holy Land, into God's place. As a matter of fact, every Jew would have been familiar with this idea of shaking off the dust because 
it would, in, a, in effect, it would be a symbol, if you will, a metaphor symbolizing God's rejection of those who reject his beloved son. You've got to understand something. The disciple of Jesus can expect hospitality, but he or she may also expect hostility. But it also points to something else that is so critical. And that's the nature of the message. We're not talking about politics and we're not talking about mythology. We're talking about the difference on on whether or not you are going to live or die, whether or not you're going to spend eternity with God or apart from God. And remember what we've already seen. You will believe or you won't believe. You'll embrace the message of hope or you'll reject the message of hope. As a matter of fact, Did the instructions change later on? Well, in a sense, yes. As a matter of fact, if you look at Luke chapter 22, verse 35, if you have a Bible, turn to Luke chapter 22, verse 35, because towards the end of the ministry, now Jesus will say to his his disciples, when I sent you without a money bag, when I sent you without a knapsack, when I sent you without sandals, did you lack anything? And so they said nothing. Hey, do you remember the first time I sent you? And I said, you're going to have to trust me for everything? Did you need anything? No, we didn't need anything. And then in verse 36, then he said to them, but now he who has a money bag, take it. He who likewise has a knapsack and he who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. What do you mean? Have the instructions changed? The principles of the instructions have not have, have not changed, but with a different time and a different chapter is going to come different instructions. Does this mean that we ignore the principles or avoid the lessons of equipping independence? I don't think so. Does this mean that we're to shake off the dust of our feet and never share the gospel twice with anyone? I don't think so. In the ancient world, like I said, the first century Jew would have understood the practice. The religious Jews insisted that when a foreigner came into their country, that they would shake off the dust. Ivor Powell writes, and I quote, It was their means of proclaiming that Orthodox Jews could have no dealings with unclean people. When Jesus instructed the disciples to follow this procedure, he was using a practice well known in every community. He was proclaiming the simple fact that a man who refused to entertain the preacher of the gospel was an unclean in the sight of God, as Gentiles were in the estimation of the Jewish rabbis. When Christ compared Sodom with that city, his words of condemnation provided food for thought. Doubtless the disciples entered many respectable communities where sincere people endeavored to observe the laws of God and be faithful to the practice of their religious beliefs. Apparently this would be of little worth if they rejected the preachers and they rejected the message. Point? How are they like Sodom and Gomorrah? Sodom and Gomorrah never had the gospel preached to them. Two guys who were disciples of Jesus didn't show up on the doors of Sodom and show up on the doors of Gomorrah and say, hey, I know you guys are living a kind of a wicked lifestyle, estranged from God and all of that stuff. But do you realize that there's hope for you? Do you realize that there's love for you? Do you realize that there is a loving Savior who's willing to forgive you? 
The reason why it's going to be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah is because Sodom and Gomorrah never got what the villages of Galilee got. People who came to them in the name of Jesus and by the authority of Jesus. So why does Jesus indicate it? Well, again, to whom much is given, much is required. There's probably no country in the whole world that has heard the gospel as much as the United States of America. And there's probably no country in the whole world that has resisted that gospel and rejected that gospel over and over and over again. To whom much is given, much is required. You know, it's one thing for you to hear the message of hope. And it's another thing for you to say, I don't believe it. I don't want it. And I don't accept it. And so, in brief, the disciples are to, number one, live in utter simplicity and humility. That's verses 8 and 9. They are to live like ordinary folk. They're to avoid flamboyant, extravagant lifestyles. Those things that emphasize self-indulgent behavior. They're to, there, there seems to be... The reason seems to be that the servant of God seeks those things that are above and not below. And so our focus on preaching the gospel and ministering to people is exactly that. It is Jesus. It is the gospel. And then it is those people who are in need. And so here's the idea. The, re the reasons will continue to be that we are to model and then to depend upon God. And number two, that the disciples were to show stability and settledness. So not only are they accepting the hospitality, hospitality but they're also ex ex expecting and accepting, if you will, the hospitality in a gracious way that serves the Savior. And then when they find a place, they stay there. They don't move around. They're to avoid the temptation to seek more comfort and to seek more luxury. And number three, the disciples are not only to not reject hospitality. Number four, they're to preach repentance, it says in verse 12. The disciples were to minister to those who were possessed by evil spirits or evil, both to the body and to the soul. And so it says in verse 12, so they went out and preached. The word is karudzo, preached. You know what the difference between teaching and preaching is? Teaching imparts information. Preaching compels the listener to listen to what is taught and then believe it and do it. So when the person says, I don't like it when you preach to me. Sorry, that's my job. I'm a preacher. And the preacher's job is to instruct you and then motivate you to do what the text says. So they went out and preached. And look what their message was, that people should repent. The Amplified Bible reads, quote, so they went out and preached that men should repent. That is that they should change their minds for the better, heartily amend their ways with abhorrence over their past sins, unquote. So repentance is the word metanoia. It means to change your mind. And so, by the way, repentance always includes three elements. Number one, there's a change of mind. 
We wish to do good instead of wishing to do evil. And so the idea is when they went out, the people were to change their mind about God. They were to change their mind about sin. They were to change their mind about Jesus. In other words, when they change their mind about sin, they don't understand the gravity of sin, the wickedness of sin, what sin actually does, how it condemns. And when you change your mind about Jesus, that he is the savior, that he is the satisfying solution, that there's a change of mind, but there's also a change of heart. Instead of loving sin, we have now set our affection on the things above. We love Jesus. We love his commandments. The psalmist said in Psalm 119, verse 97, oh, how I love your law. In other words, the change of mind about Jesus and about sin results in a change of heart where you go. I I want to know Jesus and I want to love him and I want to serve him. Here's the idea. That that change of heart will never come simply as an act of will, but through the power of God. He gives us a new heart, it says in Jeremiah, a new spirit in Ezekiel 18.31. This is what Jesus meant when he was speaking to the religious leader Nicodemus. And he said, you must be born again. You must be born from on high. And you might be thinking, I've changed my mind about sin and I've changed my mind about Jesus. But you've never changed your heart because you don't know how. No one's ever told you that the change of heart doesn't come because you will your heart to change. But rather because God wills your heart to change. Because the change of mind results in a change of heart because the reality is now you're willing to accept the message of Jesus and believe the message of Jesus. And that becomes part of the point. It is God who works in us both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. That's what Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2 verse 13. It isn't us changing simply our mind but allowing God by that change of mind to change our heart, which results in a change of life. In other words, by changing your mind and changing your heart, there is a change of life. Thereby, we show that our repentance is real and true. And this is why it's so important to hear that message. There's a little poem that used to go, "'Tis not enough to say, I'm sorry and repent, and then go on from day to day just as we always went. Repentance is to leave the sins we loved before and show that we in earnest grieve by doing them no more. And in verse 13, it says, "'And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. The very first thing that I want you to understand about verse 13. When they were equipped by Jesus and authorized by Jesus and then followed the instructions of Jesus, it worked. It worked. It worked. 
Look what it says. They cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick. In other words, they addressed the internal, invisible, and also the external and visible at the corner or at the core of the disciples' mission, preaching repentance, casting out demons, anointing the sick with oil. By the way, Mark is the only gospel to mention this anointing with oil. Remember, in the ancient world, olive oil was medicinal. It's not magic. It's medicinal. In the ancient world, in the pre-scientific era of medicine, did people get sick? The answer is yes. And so olive oil was sort of a, a tool that you would use for all kinds of medicinal purposes. Now we use green chili. Green chili. You know, we're not going to anoint you with green chili, but I got to tell you something. If we did, you'd feel something. See, you'd go, you anointed me with oil, but I don't feel any different. You, would, you get anointed with green chili, you go, I feel something tingling. I feel something burning. The whole point isn't that this is magic, but rather that this is a miracle. Because remember what the confrontation is, the confrontation that is taking place. Remember who Mark's gospel is written to. It's, it's written to Roman people. And the Romans know what it means to be gripped by sin and shame and sickness. Just like in the world in which we live, maybe in the world in which you grew up. If you ever ask the question, I wonder if Jesus can heal someone like me of my addictions and drama. I wonder if Jesus can address the issues inside of my heart and the circumstances that I grew up in. Maybe you grew up in, in utter sick circumstances and there was this sense in which you need to experience the liberation from the inside out. People who were possessed, people who were oppressed, they're ministering to the suffering and the hurting. And remember, oil becomes a type and a picture, a symbol, if you will, of the presence of the Holy Spirit. The oil was meant to cause the person anointed to concentrate on the power of God and the presence of God and the message of God and the power of the Holy Spirit and the presence of the Holy Holy Spirit, and you're concentrating on the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit, typified and symbolized by that oil, and you begin to ask and answer the question, can, can the Holy Spirit address the issue inside of my heart? Can the Holy Spirit address the, the issue inside of my circumstances? Oil is a symbol of God's goodness and care, comfort and joy and mercy. The Bible talks about the oil of gladness. In Psalm 45, 7, you've loved righteousness, you've hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness, it says. As a matter of fact, in Hebrews chapter 1, he repeats that very passage, you have loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore, God, even your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness above everyone else. And so in Mark's gospel, the emphasis is on the servant's ability to give the disciples power over unclean spirits, to heal all manner of disease, to preach the kingdom of God. Why does Mark emphasize and concentrate on this issue of power over evil spirits? And the reason is because people are in a battle for their very lives. Some of you are. You've told me about it. 
You've told me about what's going on inside of your heart and how you don't seem to have victory over a particular place in your life. And somehow, even though you've accepted Jesus, you've repented with your mind, but somehow there's residual inside of your heart where there seems to be some sort of bondage. And guess what? The Bible says that if you will accept the authority of Jesus and you will embrace the instructions of Jesus, that there's hope, there's liberation. It works. David McKenna writes, Jesus has attested his greatness once again. Others will grasp his vision, receive his authority, Teach his truth, follow his actions, multiply his results. Acknowledging his limitations, Jesus has multiplied his presence. What does McKenna mean by limitations? I'm going to suggest to you it's the fact that Jesus is one person with two natures. In the incarnation, Jesus can't be in Jerusalem and Galilee at the same time. And so in this particular passage and under these particular circumstances, now there are six ministry teams, excluding Jesus, six ministry teams, each saying to anyone who's willing to listen. We've been sent here by God. We've been sent here with a message. That the emptiness inside of you doesn't have to stay. The wickedness inside of you doesn't have to remain. The guilt inside of you, there's forgiveness. There's hope. We're here to tell you, to encourage you, to change your mind about sin and to change your mind about Jesus and to change your mind about who he is and what he can do for you. And then they pray for them. And they anoint them. And the demon possessed are delivered and the sick are made whole. But remember, they're authorized by Jesus. They're sent by Jesus with the message that Jesus has given for them to deliver. The new ambassadors were carrying the servant's message everywhere. They urged the listener to repent. This was and is and ever will be the church's urgent message because unless sinners turn from their sin unless they seek the true and the living God all hope for entering the eternal kingdom will be lost and that's why it's important that you take the message seriously I do there's no message more important that sinners be liberated, that Jesus become their Lord, that we experience freedom that can only be found in Christ. And I'm going to pray that you will be equipped by Jesus and that you'll be instructed by Jesus. Because the journey that you're about to take, you might be traveling light, or you might be traveling a little bit heavy, but make no mistake about it. Each and every one of you are headed in a particular direction. It's a direction of service and submission. But remember, 
You can never carry the message of Jesus until you've been with Jesus. Heavenly Father, I pray for each and every person within the sound of my voice. That, Lord, for those who have not been with Jesus, that that would be their desire. That, Lord, that they would be willing to change their mind about sin and about the Savior and about salvation. So that their hearts can be changed by God's powerful, wonderful, Holy Spirit. So that we can experience life instead of death and hope instead of fear. And Heavenly Father, I pray that the invisible will become visible. And Lord, I pray that when we're confronted by demons and evil, that, Lord, we would be able to confront those demons and that evil. It makes perfect sense to us that they would block our way and obstruct the message. But, Heavenly Father, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would declare forgiveness and hope that's found in Jesus Christ alone. And so again, Father, I pray that you'll use these men and women in ways that even they are just now beginning to understand. In Jesus' name, Amen.